sometimes situations are so totally desperate that nothing less than an intervention will help. Sometimes I watch uh, the documentary on the television called 999 What's Your Emergency? And you hear these frantic voices crying out for someone to come to the aid and help of their loved one who's been stabbed or been taken ill or whatever, and you, you track the emergency services as they respond to those 999 calls. It's interesting, this morning, um, my wife was telling me that there was a major road traffic accident on the bridge, uh, over the railway bridge this morning. Two, three, three cars were involved in quite a very serious accident. Uh, and just walking home from church this morning, the bridge was still closed. But um, Shell commented how quickly the emergency services were there. Literally within minutes, police and ambulance were there. They, people in those cars needed an intervention. Such was their desperate situation. Why do I say that? Because last week we overheard the prophet Isaiah pleading repeatedly, pleading urgently, pleading passionately with the Lord to come down, to intervene. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. He's praying for God to intervene. And uh, this evening we're going to be thinking about how the Lord answered that prayer in Isaiah 65. Let's ask his help. Father, as we come to this passage, we pray that we would see Jesus and that we would respond to him in love and adoration and trust and affection. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. So literally Isaiah 64, or more particularly 63.15 through 64.12, is Isaiah calling on the only emergency service in the cosmos who has the power to come down and intervene in the human situation and rescue us. And he knew <coughs> that unless the Lord literally came down to intervene, the situation was so desperate, so dark, that none other than the person of God Almighty himself coming down would there be any hope. And 65, 1 through 25 is the Lord's answer to that prayer, which we see prophesied here, and we see also played out in the gospel accounts, which tell us how the Lord literally answered that prayer for intervention. John 1, 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. God coming down in the person of his son is the answer to Isaiah's prayer <coughs> in 64.1, oh, that you <coughs> rend the heavens and come down, and he did. So 65, Isaiah 65, shows us how the Lord answered that prayer. It also shows us how we responded to the Lord's intervention. And the consequences for each of us will be determined how you and I respond to the Lord's intervention. Three things I want to bring out from this chapter this evening. And they are, number one, the Lord revealed. And our response is, we either receive him, we either receive him or reject him. 
Number two, the Lord responds and we're either delivered or destroyed and the Lord renews. The Lord revealed, the Lord responds, the Lord renews. At the end of the prayer in Isaiah 64, we read these words, and I've never closed a prayer with these words. After all this, Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? Look at 65 verse 1, which is overflowing with the Lord's amazing grace. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here am I, here am I. It's fascinating that by the Lord revealing himself, he revealed himself to a people who did not ask for him, a people who did not seek him, a people who did not call on his name. We see that literally played out in the gospel accounts. They record multiple times how the outsiders received Jesus with open arms. In Matthew chapter 2, the wise men are there to worship him, the magi from the east. Whereas the rest of Jerusalem, there are no show at the manger or in Bethlehem. In Matthew chapter 8, we have the centurion. In Mark chapter 5, we have the Gadarene demoniac. In Mark chapter 7, we have the Syrophoenician woman. And it's fascinating to track out how those who did not seek the Lord found the Lord, which is in answer to what we're seeing in 65 one. In actual fact, if you look at Romans chapter 10, verse 20, the Apostle Paul quotes Isaiah 65, verse 1, in his intercessory prayer for Israel, his own national people, and his exposition and explanation of God's present relationship with national Israel. It's interesting when I, when I talk to you and ask, How did you come to know the Lord? It's always a joy to hear how the Lord brought you to himself. Everyone's story is different. Some of us were brought up in Christian homes. And the Lord used the Christian home in which we were brought up in as a means of grace. You haven't become a Christian because your mummy and daddy were. You've become a Christian because God is gracious. And he may have used your mother and father. He may have used the Christian home as a means of grace. Praise God if that's your story. Others of us have been led to Christ from the completely wrong side of the tracks. Have we not? Why? The answer is Isaiah 65 verse 1. Because he chose to reveal himself to us. The lovely promise in John chapter 6, 37, where Jesus says, All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none 
of all those the Father has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. So we see in the first part of Isaiah 65, and it, it, it tracks out through the rest of the chapter, as the Lord reveals himself, there are those who have received him. Which makes me ask this question of you. As you've seen the Lord revealed to you in his word, have you received him? Have you received him? And 65.2 explains the Lord being rejected. 65.2 is overflowing. If 65.1 is overflowing with the Lord's amazing grace, 65.2 is overflowing with the Lord's amazing patience. All day long, I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations of people who continually provoke me to my face. And the passage goes on to explain how these people, whom the Lord patiently and lovingly and passionately and persistently holds out his hands, provoke him to his face, offering sacrifice in gardens, burning incense on altars of brick, who sit among the graves, who spend the night keeping secret vigil, eat the flesh of pigs whose pots hold a broth of impure meat and say, keep away, don't come near, I'm too sacred for you. The gospel accounts also not only track that those from the outside who welcomed him and received him, but also the gospel accounts show repeatedly that he was rejected, particularly by his own. John chapter 1 verse 12, uh, John chapter 1 verse 11, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And tragically, as you see tracked out in the gospel messages, in the gospel accounts, as Jesus' patience and compassion increased, so did the persistent obstinacy of his own intensify. All four gospel accounts show that. And again, interestingly, in Romans chapter 10, verse 21, Paul quotes Isaiah 65, verse 2, to explain the tragic and self-destructive stubbornness of his own national flesh and blood, his, the people of Israel, who despite all of their privilege and all of the promises that God gave them and all of their history of God intervening and saving them in the past, classically seen in Moses... Nevertheless, they refused to believe in Jesus, the Messiah, and tragically, they exhaust his patience. In John chapter 12, we read these tragic words. John 12, 37, 41. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. 
because, as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so they can neither see with their ears nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. I think they're the most tragic words that show let me just this is a sidebar there is something about the human heart let me just say this it is not wrong to doubt it is not wrong to doubt doubts and unbelief are two separate entities Unbelief is a willful, stubborn, persistent rejection of God as he has revealed himself supremely in Christ. Unbelief is a force in the human heart that ultimately exhausts the patience and compassion of God because they crossed over it's a, there's, a tra- there's a tragic line that these people, God forbid that any of us should cross this line. I mean that. God forbid any of us should cross this line. Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. And then, for this reason, they could not believe in him. They crossed the line of Jesus' patience from would not believe to could not believe. They sealed their own destruction by their persistent, stubborn refusal to accept Jesus as the Messiah. Please, God forbid that any of us or any of our loved ones should cross the line of God's patience. And next we see the Lord responds. Delivered and destroyed. Look at verse 8 of chapter 65. This is what the Lord says. As when juice is still found in a cluster of grapes and people say don't destroy it, there is still blessing in it. So I will do on behalf of my servants. I will not destroy them all. The Lord uses a metaphor here to describe his people in the present age of the year of the Lord's favor. Because that's where we're living at the moment. That's where we've been living for some thousands of years. We are living in the year of the Lord's favor. And the Lord uses the metaphor of a mixed bunch of grapes. Some grapes are sweet because they have received his grace. Some grapes are sour, because they have rejected his grief. But no, his grace. But notice that the bunch of grapes are spared in order to harvest the good before disposing of the bad. The visible church is a, mix, is a mixed bunch of grapes. I don't know whether you feel that's insulting. You're a bunch of grapes, and you're a mixed bunch of grapes, you know. Jesus talks about this in multiple ways within the gospel accounts. For example, 
he talks about the parable of the wheat and the weeds that are sown, that the gospel is sown and people come to life in Christ, but also weeds are sown. Wheat and tares was one of the old, one of the old uh, ways it was expressed. Matthew 13, 24 through 30, the wheat and the weeds. The field is the world, but there are wheat and weeds growing up. But the, 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 the weeds are not plucked out until the harvest. That's the passage, that's the point of this. Or another way that Jesus expressed it in the parable of the net. The net goes down and you catch all sorts of fish. You don't sort them out until you get back to the shore and then the good go in uh, for the market and the rest go are disposed of. And there's that terrifying f- passage in Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not? But it turns out they're not genuine Christians after all. The passage, the, the, the warning here is there could be two people sat next to each other in this church and one is a true worshipper of the Lord and one is not. And the terrifying thing is the one who's not may not even be aware of it. Two Timothy two nineteen says, "But the Lord knows those who are His." I would also go further to say, the Lord wants you to know that you are His. He knows who are His, but He wants you to have an unshakable assurance that you are His. You know, with unshakable assurance, that you have received the Lord. Look at verses 9 through 10 in 65. This is a promise. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah, those who will possess my mountains, my chosen people who inherit them, and there will my servants live. Sharon will become a pasture for flocks, and the the valley of Achor a resting place for herds. For my people who, what, seek me. One of the marks of the genuine people of God, are they seek him. Those who seek him, find him. Those who seek him will be saved. And then we see the Lord responds, not only to those who he is in the process of delivering, but in the, those who will be destroyed. Look at verses 11 through 16. But as for you who forsake the Lord and forget my holy mountain, who spread a table for fortune and fill bowls of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you for the sword, and all of you will fall in the slaughter. For I called, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not listen. You did evil in my sight and chose what displeases me. Whilst the true Christian and the false Christian are living side by side in the visible church, there is coming a day when they will be separated, literally as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. Verse 11 again, but as for you. The terrifying warning that forsaking the Lord and turning from faith in Jesus to superstitious fatalism, a table for fortune and a mixed wine and mixed wine for destiny, fortune and destiny, is literally sealing their own fatal destiny because I will destine you, verse 12, for the sword. 
For I called, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not listen. And in verses 13 through 15, we have the stunning contrast of how the Lord relates to his servants and how he relates to those who have willfully and deliberately made themselves his enemies. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My servants will eat, but you will go hungry. My servants will drink, but you will go thirsty. My servants will rejoice, but you will be put to shame. My servants will sing out of the joy of their hearts, but you will cry out from anguish of heart and wail in brokenness of spirit. You will leave your name for my chosen ones to to use in their curses. The sovereign Lord will put you to death, but to his servants he will give another name. So, deadly serious. How can we know what we are truly destined for? Let me ask the question another way. What are the distinguishing marks of the true Christian from the counterfeit Christian? The answer of this passage is in verse 12, and indeed it's the answer of the whole Bible. And it's in the middle of verse 12. For I called, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not listen. Because the Lord has revealed himself. He's come down in answer to Isaiah's prayer. The Lord has literally answered that. He's revealed himself supremely through his word. I spoke. And he's revealed himself fully and finally in the word who became flesh. And he picks up this. How do the the, the marks of God's true people is seen in how they respond to to him revealing himself supremely in Christ. Isaiah 66 verse 2 reads, These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit, and who tremble at my word. The, the, The way you can know is really doing a health check on your heart and seeing how much weight God's word truly has in your life. So let me ask you a question. How is your spirit? Is it marked by a humility and contrition? Contrition means broken over your sin. Is that how you... Is that that a mark of your heart? Because those are the ones the Lord favors. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit. I once had a, a colleague at work. He was um, one of my. Uh, he, he was a senior manager at one time. I was working on a project, and he had a reputation. And one person said to me, he could strut sitting down. He was so full of himself, and there wasn't a there wasn't a humble bone in his body. And it's an ugly thing to see. It's an ugly thing to see. So let me ask you another question then. How much weight does God's word have in your life? It's an interesting response, isn't it? Those who tremble at my word. Does God's word ever make you tremble? Or is it, I've read my bit for the day. (laughs) Tick. 
When, have you, when was the last time you trembled at God's word? When you read something in the Bible and the Holy Spirit put his finger on something in your life and you shook. Do you delight in the Lord? Do you seek the Lord? Chapter 65, verse 10. Do you find that God reveals himself to you in your word? We were in the prayer meeting earlier on and, and, and Norman quoted Psalm 91. And he said it's, it's a very real temptation to give that away. I know who that applies to, but the, the, the blessing is by making it apply to ourselves. To embrace what God has said and say that's God speaking to me. Someone once described the Bible as God's love letter to his people. If you had, a, if you have, if, if, if you had, do you, do you, have you kept the love letters that you had? <laughs> do you ever wrote, reread them? I, I found my, my father, after my mother and father had died and clearing out their house, I found the love letters that my father had written to my mum. And, and she had kept them. She kept every one of them. And I was reading these letters, and she kept them. And, and it made me weep to see how my father expressed his love for, for my mum. Is that how you relate to God's word? How hungry for God's word are you? How self-disciplined are you in your own personal life of setting a time part of your day where you can seek the Lord to find him and adore him in his word. If these things are true of you, in by degree, you can be assured on the authority of God's word that you are among those, you are not among those who shrink back and are destroyed, but among those who persevere and are saved. And then the passage closes with these lovely promises the Lord renews be glad and rejoice forever we're not there yet there's these terrible words from Macbeth act 4 scene 3 and these terrible words express themselves every day each new morn new widow's howl New orphans cry, new sorrows strike heaven on the face. That's the reality in which we live, do we not? But in this terrible reality in this present age, that is not the last word. And into our world, the Lord who literally came down, who rent the heavens and came down and experienced death himself on the cross so that he might destroy death forever. He speaks into that situation. He speaks into our present agonies and sorrows. Verse 65, verse 16, and the second half. For the past troubles will be forgotten and hidden from my eyes. Why? The past there is coming a day when the past troubles, what we are now experiencing as present troubles, will be forgotten 
and hidden from God's eyes. Why? And I think the NIV got it wrong when they said see in verse 17. I think the answer should be for. 65.17 should read, For I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight, and its people a joy. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever had a terrible nightmare where in vivid and graphic horror what you most dread for your loved ones and for yourself actually happens? Those closest to you, your spouse, your children, your grandchildren, that are part of your life are vividly portrayed in your dream or your nightmare as either being lost or even worse. Terrible nightmares. So vivid. And how do you feel when you wake up literally in a cold sweat and then it dawns on you gradually that all your loved ones are safe and well and you too are okay and it was just a terrible nightmare not real after all how do you feel when you realize that terrible nightmare wasn't real it was just a nightmare that is what the Lord promises it will be like for all of his people in the new heavens and the new earth, the former things, the nightmare, will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. In the Lord of the Rings trilogy, after the Ring of Power has been destroyed in Mount Doom and Frodo and Sam Gamgee are brought back on eagles' wings to Elrond's home and Sam Gamgee wakes up in a warm bed and sees his old friend Gandalf looking down at him. He says, Gandalf, you're alive! I thought you were dead. I thought I was dead too. Here's the question. He says to Gandalf, does this mean that all sad things will come untrue? This is what the Lord promises it will be like for all his people in the new heavens and the new earth. When Jesus attended the funeral of his friend Lazarus and Martha came out to see Jesus do you remember what he said to her John 11 21 through 26 Lord Martha said to Jesus if you had been here my brother would not have died but I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask Jesus said to her your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? What is Jesus actually promising here 
when he says that he is the resurrection and the life. He is promising that he is, as the Bible tells us, making all things new. And that because he is the resurrection and the life, he guarantees in his own blood that one day all sad things will come untrue for the people of God. The new heavens and the new earth that Jesus purchased for his people on the cross and as his resurrection from the dead guarantees, we will enjoy the life we always longed for but was never fully possible or within our grasp here and now. And we will experience the unceasing joy that we were made for, but never fully able to experience here and now. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. This is paradise restored at the renewal of all things. This is the Lord's call for us now to trust him, to worship him, to adore him as we long for the day when according to his blood-bought promise all sad things will indeed become untrue. Yet to all who did receive him to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of a husband's decision, or, nor a human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Have you received him? The one who literally rent the heavens and came down to earth for you. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, we praise and bless and worship you that you revealed yourself to those of us who did not ask. You, we, were, you, we found you, even though we did not seek you. Thank you that the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. We worship and bless and praise you for all that we have in Christ now. We thank you and praise you, Father, that the best is yet to come. There is coming a day when the sound of weeping and the sound of crying, the sound of heartbreak, will be a thing not remembered anymore. We worship and bless and praise you. Grant, please, by your sovereign grace that everyone leaves this room tonight knowing that they have received him, the one who literally rent the heavens and came down for them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
Let's stand and sing our closing song. We've sung it once to this tune before in this church.